Real Fun DC. So good you'll eat it up. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, on the Real Fun DC channel. So if you're new, just a quick intro. Um, I've been covering the DC food and wine scene for the last 18 years. Uh, you may hear my husband, David, and I on the Food and Wine Variety Show, Foodie and the Beast. We just celebrated 13 years on air and uh, 25 years being married. It is a feat, to say the least. Uh, but it really is the only food and wine variety show in the DC metro area, and it's a ton of fun. You may also hear me on WTOP Radio, where I do trend reports and roundups of fun and delicious things happening in the area. Of course, you follow me on social at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Not so much on Facebook, but definitely Instagram and Twitter. Um, and here we are, Industry Night. It's a deeper dive. It really allows me to find out more about what people are doing, not just in this area, but uh, domestically and internationally. So before we dig in uh, to what's happening in the food space, uh, let's talk about where I've been. And it's been pretty yummy. I was at Anju uh, recently. They did an Obsidian wine dinner. I was not really familiar with Obsidian wine, so I was really excited to get a taste. First of all, if you haven't been to Anju, it's Danny Lee, Scott Trunot, and Angel Barreto, who just became Food & Wine's top 10 best chefs in the uh, country. Um, amazing, amazing Korean cuisine. Um, I got to catch up with some old friends. I definitely met some new ones. And so this Northern California winery actually plants its vines on volcanic soil, which totally speaks to me because I'm a Sicilian wine drinker. I love Mount Etna wines. And this is kind of similar. I'm seeing my guests later in the show giving me the thumbs up. So um, really fresh, earthy, ashy, lovely wines, and they're very reasonable. So that's Obsidian. All you need to know about that is on the website. Um, so I was back at La Bise. Um, David had never been, and it's always good to bring my husband to someplace new and into Ashok Bajaj's latest iteration of a French brasserie. Um, this is in the old overroom space, and Tyler Stout is the chef, and his menu and his execution of it did not disappoint. So don't think Le Diplomat, because that's more raucous and loud. Think a little more sedate. Um, but it is a beautiful dining room and the food is really terrific. We ordered a lot. I mean, that's kind of how I roll. Uh, there was a really tangy beef tartare, a lush butter poached lobster, the avocado salad. Um, it's punctuated with crispy matchstick potatoes and there's a lot of acid in it. So the creaminess and the avocado and the acid in the salad just were just delicious. Uh, the salmon kulibiak, I don't think I pronounced it correctly, but it is a beautifully cooked salmon wrapped in seasoned rice, wrapped in puff pastry. And it's, it's delicious. I've never had it before. I've had it here, but this is the only restaurant right now that I've been to that's carrying it. And if you do go, I would not miss it. Um, they also do a French staple for dessert, the uh, Paris breast. And uh, that is puff, uh, a uh, pate au chou with a almond cream and it's um it's delicious so definitely worth checking that restaurant out and i want to tell you about one of our guests on foodie and the beast last week they do um it's good stuff beverage and we had the founder dan grimm on it is an all natural strain specific 
cannabis beverage. Um, it's the first time I've ever had marijuana in my beverage. Um, and it was really interesting. So there's a hundred milligrams of THC in this stuff. Um, and I didn't really know what that meant. I wasn't really hot to drink it because I wanted to know what the deal was first. So it's something that you should either sip a little bit of or have a shot of, or you can use it in a mocktail. They do not advise mixing it with alcohol, but the bottle is pretty interesting. It, it's something you would put on your bar. It's actually on my bar at the moment. So definitely worth listening to that show and checking that out. Okay, so um, that's enough about me. Let's get on to their show. Uh, the Cheese Lady, Jill Erber, you know her from Cheese Teak, and she's been on my show, Foodie and the Beast, and she's all over the list, areyouonit.com, and She's been on industry night before. Um, and obviously, what are we going to talk about? We talk about cheese um, because uh, Jill last time brought in a variety of cheesemakers and we went down the rabbit hole and all the stinky, gooey yumminess. But today we're going down a different hollow um, and we're going to talk positive insights into the industry, identifying the gifts of COVID. Um, I take those words right out of Jill's mouth. But first, Eileen Fuchs. I hope I said that right. Uh, president and executive director of the Building Museum. She pops on to talk about their latest exhibit and they just launched a new climate initiative and I'm looking forward to hearing about it. So hi, Eileen, how are you? Hi, I'm furiously taking notes on your, on your booty. <laughs> okay, so you're new to the area. Yeah. You came in from New York. Let's talk a little bit about your background and how you wind up at the National Building Museum. Sure. Yeah. Um, I can't. I, it's as a little feedback. There we go. Okay. Um, so I yeah we I I started in the role this summer and just moved my family down here all together in in August. So we're we're totally new to the area. Um, and it's an incredible honor, an incredible moment to be taking the helm of the National Building Museum. Um, I'm coming from New York, and in New York, most recently, I was the president and CEO of Snug Harbor Cultural Center and Botanical Garden and mm -hmm. ran that beautiful 83 acre site and was the property manager and cultural programmer there for different tenants and 14 botanical gardens and 10 acres of wetlands and a, and a, and a working farm. We had amazing, amazing uh, relationships with, um, with with different food and, and beer producers there, which was incredible. Um, and then before that, I was at the Brooklyn Navy Yard where I was, the, I'm a kind of ran the arts and culture aspect of a development corporation. And there we also started a rooftop farm as well. So a lot of, um, a lot of uh, culinary and agricultural intersections. Well, I am very big on rooftop farming. That's a, yeah. that's a show for another day. Like, there we go. <laughs> totally uh, okay, so what brings you to the National Building Museum? And can you give us a little bit of background on the museum? Because I don't know if everybody knows about it. It's kind of like a little gem and a lot of parties are held there because the hall is so massive. Right, 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 right. So then, yes, the National Building Museum. I'm, I'm hopefully here to to put some put some national into the National Building Museum. It's a very we tell a national story, and we're we're charged with really, you know, we were founded by Congress in 1980 to to be our nation's museum for the built environment, and the built environment is a really broad term. I think that really it's it's best to kind of think about the places where you live and work and play, and that kind of centers you to think, oh wow, it's it's everything. You know, and we um, we really represent architecture, design, landscape design, urban planning, um, and all how all of those issues have in you know direct and deep impact on our on our lives and our communities and 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 on our planet. Um, and so, you know, I I my I built my career kind of working in these incredible 
historic spaces that can be activated for kind of amazing cultural experiences and then also really um really being able to kind of tell a story of, of of adaptive reuse and of the power of design and architecture and so when this opportunity came knocking it was just um it's incredible you know and i i think especially on the heels of coming out of a pandemic where people have I think are looking at their space and their relationship to space in totally new ways. And I just think it's an incredible opportunity for the National Building Museum to say, let's let's talk about all these critical issues that the building industries are have, have contributed to and now can help us, you know, create more just and sustainable and resilient spaces and places to live. So it's it's a really incredible opportunity. I feel a lot of, I feel really honored. I feel a lot of a lot of responsibility, but a lot of a lot of opportunity. Well, I think you bring up something really interesting about the National Building Museum. You know, over the years, aside from the mega parties that are held in the mm -hmm. massive and gorgeous hall, there have been some incredible activations there. So the beach was there. Mm -hmm. years yeah. ago, you know, they filled like half of it with like a ball pit and, and it was really executed beautifully. But I, while it was a fun activation and I'm sure very Instagrammable, what was missing from that conversation was the architecture component and sustainability and structure and etc. So I love that there is this move now to really talk about what's important. I mean, we are talking about an infrastructure bill. <laughs> Doesn't buildings come into that, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, and and the, and those activations are also, you know, I, to me when I think about the things that we do and and, and will be and will be doing over the next couple of years, it's it's in four areas: it's equity, it's environment, it's innovation, and it's wonder. And that sense of wonder really does speak to those things you're talking about that are that everybody has become synonymous with the museum. These kind of big, crazy activations because you have that that scale there. You know, in this city right. where like there's like there's nothing but unbelievable buildings, we still stand out as one of the most remarkable spaces because of those incredible interior columns, because of just that sense of your outside inside. So that is, that's also important, right? And that can be a touch point for someone to, for the first time to go, oh, wow, wait a minute, like this was designed, this is amazing architecture. What does that mean? You know, so all of that is there. And so to me, it's like a yes. And it's a, it's really cool to, to really reinvent that space, which was the pension built to be the pension building. And also though, I think it was interesting. It was built when it was being built the you know dc just said you know we actually need some space to do big parties and at, you know that if they did grover cleveland's you know inaugural ball there and have never kind of hit the ground running so like that sense of like doing big events is kind of in our dna which i think is also um interesting but you know it it, it is it is as we look ahead and we have new leadership and a new moment and we're reopening you know we want to really hit critical issues because it's critically important that the people who design and build our communities and our and our spaces are, are thinking about the, its impact. Right, and the future. Couldn't yeah. agree with you more. Well, actually, to that point, um, let's talk about the new exhibit, The Wall, because yeah. this is a bold step to take. So let's talk about what it is and how people can experience it. Yes, so um, I'll first say that we're, we are open to the public Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, 11 to four, and with the, with the wall opening, we're gonna open up on Mondays as well. So that's four days a week, we'll be able to come in. Um, and so the wall is, is the wall, El Muro is us looking at the Southern border wall. And, you know, at the, the building museum, you know, our mission, as I've said, you know, we, we engage and we educate people about the built environment and its impact on their lives and communities. And so for, we know our position is that the wall represents one of the most significant, you know, built environment issues and, uh, and projects of the past century. And so we're, we're looking at it, you know, applying an exhibition to really provide a, a platform for new understandings and new perspectives. 
And what will the exhibit feel like? Can we talk about it a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you asked. I, it's, I love the way you asked that. What does it feel like? Because that's that's the interesting thing about an exhibition that's that makes it not a book or or you know not a podcast. It, it's it you it's really multidimensional. And so you get to really experience it really heightens your sense and sensibility in different ways. And so you're the I think what this exhibit does really well is it. You know, if you like data, if you like dates, if you like the timelines, if you want to think about the origins of and evolution of, of the southern border and of other borders and of and that, that kind of context, it gives you that. But it also gives you this moment where you're you're walking in and among these spaces. You go into a small room and you hear a soundscape from from the southern border. You see faces. You see um, relics of, of of a bag of toothbrushes and maxi pads that have been that are left by migrants. And then you at you at the end of the exhibit. There's this amazing installation of these teeter totters that, that actually had been installed at the at the border um, in the summer of 2019, where people on both sides of the of, of the U.S. and of right. Mexico I you know, engaged that. on them. Yeah, yeah, it won a you know a, a London a design award, um, mm -hmm. and so we'll be we'll be the first to ever to ever show that in a museum. And so you really get a, you know, we we're telling an infrastructure story, but it's a people story because yeah. infrastructure is that that's what it is, you know. And so I, I think that I think it's a really um, incredible way to experience something that you hear about in the news every day that feels very sort of like a policy policy drive you, you hear and you feel it in a different way in the space well it sounds um very powerful but also yeah. really beautiful and i'm I, I cannot wait personally to go in and yes see. please yes um but before uh before i let you go i do want to talk about because i legitimately got the press release right before you came on air that the National Building Museum has a new climate initiative yep. um, falls under you. So yep. tell us about that. Yeah, I'm really proud of this, really excited about this. This is my, um, you know, I've been in the role, like I said, a little less than six months, but this is our, our, we're launching this as a new signature series. The National Building Museum has two other signature series. One is Spotlight on Design, which is, you know, which has been a long, a long lived in many, many star architects right. and others there and equity in the built environment. And this joins as that third aspect. To me, you know, we have to, as, as the nation's museum that's, you know, representing building industries is talking about the built environment. And when we know that you know, over 40% of, of carbon output globally is coming from building industries. We have to put, you know, really stake a claim to say, we are going to look at this issue. We're going to, we're going to, we are going to we see a responsibility and an opportunity to convene thought leadership and communities towards solutions and, and really, really be part of this conversation. Um, you know, that only the museum can do. There's so many smart people having so many smart conversations about this. And, and we want museums to be able to provide a, a bridge and a platform to make some of these really complex issues more accessible to more people because I think more people care about this than than ever well you know, I so think you make yeah. a good point I, I what I love is that there's an action here uh, what we all sort of suffer from is there's a lot of pearl clutching and hand wringing and, and but feeling powerless not knowing yeah who's in charge or who can, who will be the leader of these things so that we can actually make things happen. And when it falls on either individuals or individual organizations like the National Building Museum saying, hey, we're taking a charge here. We are taking control and we're gonna do it. I think it, it sends a little bolt of not just relief, but also like, oh, here's something to follow. Here's something I can look at and recommend or utilize do you know what i mean yes I, I love that you i love that you're saying that and i i felt that i felt really compelled to say we have we have to we have to do something and we have to and it should be consistent and it should be 
Um, and it should really play up our strengths, which we, you know, we do, we do have an incredible, you know, our list of stakeholders and our board and people here are, are, are giants of the building industry. And so we have this, we have this ability to bring other people in, to bring youth voices in, to bring other people in, to understand that there's, there's a way out. And so much of it is around how we design and build. So let's talk about that and let's create sort of a framework for more people to, to be involved in the conversation. You know, so so it's 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 really really exciting. I'm so glad that you picked it up and, and asked me about it because we're um, I'm I'm just I'm excited about it. You should be. Well, listen, uh, Eileen, you are the second woman to lead the uh, National Building Museum in its 40-year history, and we're so excited to have you here in uh, the D.C. area. And I hope you'll join me again on in other forms of media and back here as well. Tell everybody where they can find the National Building Museum, either online or on Instagram, please. Awesome. So um, we're NBM. We're always we're NBM everywhere we go. So NBM.org and um, follow us on, on all of our platforms and um, come visit us, you know, Friday through Friday through Monday if you're in the area. And um, we're excited. And I, I need to come back and just talk about food and building cocktails with you next time, too. Okay, okay you got it. Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> I, we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, Jill Eber from Cheese Teak is on with me next. It's Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. And we're back on Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis. Don't forget to follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S for everything you're hearing here uh, on this show and of course for everything else I'm doing. And do check out the list or you want it.com because you will find everything we just talked about at the National Building Museum there. Okay, let's go to my next guest, Jill Erber, the uh, woman behind Cheese Teak, which is an amazing uh, restaurant and market concept uh, in the Virginia area. And Jill and I were talking about what COVID was like for her. And sort of the, the there are silver linings that have come out of this pandemic, but you had to get there. It does, it, they didn't just appear. Uh, so she was really hot to get uh, on the show with me to talk about her experience. So Jill, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me always. Absolutely. Okay, so for let's just give a quick 411 on Cheese Teak, uh, the concept, where you are, because it's it, your original one came out, what, 15 years ago? Over 17 now. Oh yeah. My God. 17 years ago. We lost oh. two years to the pandemic. I can't keep track anymore. Or either that or we gained like five years. I'm not quite okay, sure. One or the uh, other. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So please, let's give everybody a quick 411. Sure. So um, Cheese Teak was founded as a specialty cheese shop back in 2004. So yes, we just celebrated our 17 year anniversary. Over the years of our business growing, we have added um, a whole wine component to our retail stores, but also very importantly, full service restaurants in our locations. So not only do we have the retail cheese and wine shops, but we have full service restaurants where we utilize lots of our ingredients from the store in our food and um, try and educate folks on how to use these interesting ingredients either at home or to enjoy them when they come and dine with us. Right, and I will say literally two weeks before the mm -hmm. pandemic yes. uh, you had so okay wait so I think it was six weeks before the pandemic or maybe two months you just opened your reopened a location but in a new spot in Shirlington correct yes. beautiful gorgeous 
And then uh, I came in for one of your famous wine dinners, which yeah. was terrific. And I remember sitting there talking with the people. I was with a guest and I was talking with the people next to me. And we were like, I mean, are you hearing about this COVID thing? Like what? It, like mm -hmm. we were all just sort of chatting about it, but nobody was, it just happened so fast is my point that we went from being in a big room with lots of people and eating and drinking and having mm -hmm. a great time together to all of a sudden not. So as a restaurateur, mm -hmm. as a market, as a wine shop, as all these different things, how did you forget the first two weeks? Because the first two weeks are yeah. were definitely different. We got to mid-April. What did you do? So one of the great benefits that we had in the big pivot that so many business owners um, and employees and, and folks had to make was we had the retail store. So that worked in our favor almost immediately when the big initial pivot happened. So you are correct. Mid-March, it was like that you were hearing whisperings of things at that wine dinner that you attended. I think it was like on March 10th. We didn't have a single, we were packed in there on top of each other and didn't have a single guest in advance say something like, oh, I hear there's this thing and can you sit us far away or we don't want to come because not a peep, you, you almost wouldn't have known. Right. Um, and then literally like a week later is when everything started coming out. So it was kind of sort of realizing that it was a really big deal, right? That this wasn't just another sort of scare of a weird virus that people weren't really familiar with. So the first big step was really recognizing things have to change and they have to change like now. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we had a retail store already in existence allowed us to make that really critical pivot and not only only remain useful to our customers, but become even more useful to them um, almost immediately. So we were luckily, um, because of that resource, we were one of the first businesses that was able to start offering supplies to people when they couldn't get supplies. And I'm not just talking about cheese and wine, which let me tell you, if people wanted some we cheese. Wanted it. Oh, we yes. <laughs> um, but we started almost immediately selling things like bleach and sanitizer and gloves. Nobody could get gloves. We sold face masks. I mean, you name it. Um, we began to sell it. We, we sort of laughed that we were like Mr. Olson's, you know, general store from Little House on the Prairie. Um, we, we really made a massive transition. We carried dairy um, out the wazoo. So we had produce of every kind. So it was trying to just be responsive. That was the very first thing we did was have more stuff to sell to people. But that they did, did. You, did you decide to do that because you had access to it? Because let's be honest, mm -hmm. at that moment, the shelves were bare, right? In the grocery right. stores and nobody understood what was happening. It was like all right. of a sudden you went and you were like, where is everything? So was it because you could order it that you were able to do that? Right. So this was one of the first big lessons to the average person about what a supply chain really means. Okay. So a lot of people didn't realize the nuances of supply chain. Okay. So they didn't realize that, for instance, the toilet paper that I purchased at Cheese Teak is a very different toilet paper than they would buy at a retail store for their home. It's a different quality. The packaging is different. The quantity is different. Everything is different. So whereas you, Nikki, might go to your local store to buy your toilet paper, you could not find any. However, businesses, because all of a sudden the customers weren't coming in anymore, we weren't going through those same supplies anymore, there was plenty of toilet paper to be had. Um, there was plenty of things like that 
but you had to adjust. You couldn't, uh, it wasn't the brands you were used to and it wasn't the format you were used to, but, but we already had those supplier connections for things that we had already been ordering for our stores and restaurant anyway. We just started ordering more stuff and it became for retail consumption as opposed to just for use within our business. And did you find that, so as you kept pivoting, you also did a whole thing. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole specifically mm-hmm. about, you know, providing for workers and things like you, yeah. really, you, you did a lot in the beginning. And as this stretched on, how did you decide, okay, because it was a constant pivot, right? Everybody, it, 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 you did 360s to figure out where to go, what to do. Um, I did it in my business. I know you did it in yours. So at what point were you like, okay, this feels good. I feel like we're in a place here. Well, I think probably um, once we got our online store really functioning smoothly. So 18 months ago- You have an online store? No. So 18 months ago, we did not have an online store. We were, oh, your little local cheese shop, you come in and shop. We didn't, nothing. Um, So once we got our online store, which we got up and running super, super quickly, um, Mm -hmm. once we got that up and running and we kind of learned what we needed to be ordering and how we were fulfilling it, um, that's, that was the first moment where I felt we've got a handle on it. Now you would lose that handle all the time. So you'd get a handle on that and you'd be like, okay, we got this, right? My team's got it. I've got it. Our customers have got it. Um, And then things, it was almost like every few weeks, something would change significantly and we would have to alter how we did, how we did business and how my staff operated and what customers should expect. So you got a handle on it, so to speak, and then you would drop the handle and you'd have to refine the handle. For for the lay person, if they're not really sure what you're referring to, I think, you know, I can speak to the fact that, you know, restaurants were allowed to open and then they had to close and then outdoors was okay. And then outdoors wasn't okay. Or mask mandates or non-mask mandates. I mean, there was a lot of knowledge that a restaurateur was supposed to be able to understand. And we're not even talking about like filing for, you know, loans or that's a, that's a whole other day. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was so much that the restaurateur was responsible for understanding both legally and from a safety perspective um, for their staff and their customers and themselves that, Mm -hmm. that is completely new. Right. It was, it was brand new. It was everything from how do you handle your own internal um, COVID scares? Um, how do you handle it if you find out a customer of yours had COVID or if an employee had COVID, but they haven't been to work in a while? You had to learn all of these protocols. And as you touched on intelligently, um, there's a whole legal aspect to it right. that you do not, of course, want to violate issues of the health department, uh, making sure you're doing things correctly and employment law, all of these different things. But then there was this very powerful engine operating which was the engine of perception. Um, And that is still an engine that is very, very powerful in in what we do. And that is giving people the um, assurance that you were running a clean shop, that you you had things organized, that you could be trusted to be hygienic and sanitizing things. So it was very much not only about what the law was requiring, but what the public wanted to see when they came into your business or worked with your business. And those things were not always in sync. So picture having to understand all of the legality and the HR issues, all of that, the science aspects, um, and um, sort of the public perception issue um, and how you sort of surf that wave was a whole different lesson to have to learn. 
I bet. And let's, I want to jump back because I didn't realize that you did not have online beforehand. <laughs> and I mean, you know, that's not easy to do. I'm fully aware of what it takes. And you have so many products. We have so you know many products. I mean? Between your wine. So just so people understand. Mm-hmm. So she's got a huge wine program. She has an incredible cheese program. And then she has a gift shop as well, like with gifts and, you know, cheese, accoutrements, wine stuff. Um, and then she has a menu. So you have all these things that you are now doing in a, I'm going to use for lack of a better term, to go capacity. Yeah. Um, so can people, did, did the online thing have to keep evolving too? Like, were people like, hey, I, I want to send a gift to blah, blah, blah in New York. Can I do that through you? And you were not doing that before? Like, how did that happen? Yes. So we had lots of lots of ancillary components that had to be rolled out in addition to, I mean, literally photographing hundreds of cheeses and hundreds of bottles of wine and all of our food items and getting them attractive and getting them online and updating the pricing. And when they'd go out of stock, mark them out of stock. But I mean, it was just, it was like a full-time job just tracking all of the inventory online. Um, but then there was all of the fulfillment aspect, which became really um, a challenge, but but a fun challenge as well, which was, okay, now, then we started doing delivery. We'd never done delivery before. But was that um, a good thing for your staff? Because if, if you weren't having the amount of people that you were used to coming in to eat and coming in to buy, was that an equalizer for your staff? Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's, that's a great question. Um, keeping our staff working was always our number one priority and still is to this day. Um, so having to be creative with how people were being tasked was really, really important. Instead of just saying, oh, sorry, there's not anyone coming in to eat. Just we'll see you in a few months. Um, trying to convert trained restaurant people into being retail employees or or literally packing to-go bags all day um, and not even seeing a single customer, just packing to-go bags. But you know what? It kept people working. And our priority was keep people working and keep them having an income. Um, so many of our people, of course, I mean, they really rely on those incomes. I mean, we all do. Um, but um, but even more so, I think, in the restaurant industry, there's lots of different types of people. And um, and we touch every type of, um, of culture. And so really making sure that people felt excited about coming to work, that they felt rewarded for coming to work. Um, something to understand was that 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 physical work that was required of employees during this time was very demanding, um, having to come in and, and do your regular job, so to speak, um, but do so with, you know, full body coverage and masks on and the, the whole shebang um, where you could, you know, you're a service person, but you couldn't hardly talk to your people. You couldn't hardly hear people. And um, so it was a very physically demanding and hard job at that time. And, um, and we wanted to make people happy that they could at least come in and, and do that. So that was, that was a thing too. I bet. No, it is a thing. And I feel like it's still a thing. Mm-hmm. So we could just take a, a right turn for a second and talk about uh, stat, like be, bringing it up to today, right? Mm-hmm. Your indoors and outdoors are open. Uh, you still have the online. I mean, now you have these right. new revenue streams that you're not going to say no to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess the question really is, is staffing that, staffing shortages are everywhere. Uh, there's tons of supply disruption happening now that's yeah. in the restaurants, right? And um, And I feel like there's a lot of anger right out there from both client side and and the business side and I I said this to you offline 
there's this, we all talked about the restaurants during the real crunch of the pandemic, right? Support your restaurants, order online, tip heavily, blah, 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 blah. But there was also these other stories happening about people being like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to go back to that. I mean, it's hard work and you're not appreciated and the tipped wage and no healthcare. And you know what I mean? And, you know, there was all these conversations happening and they're still kind of happening, but nothing's really been done. Right. So I feel like there's a lot of anger in there. And yet, you know, customers here in one ear, they're staffing shortages, but they sit down at their table and they're like, where's my drink? Like they, it, there's a do not compute that is happening. And I don't know how to educate everybody. Mm -hmm. well, I, I mean, I guess kindness would be it, but how do we make that work? Do you know what I mean? How do we do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of look at this as, you know, there had been this journey of, um, of, of sort of phases of this whole, this whole pandemic. Um, and the first of those was just this massive appreciation that, that customers had. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being open. You can do no wrong. Like, we will support you no matter what. Yes, we're tipping heavily. We're giving you tons of business. It's okay if you mess stuff up. We get it that it's hard. And that lasted quite a while. There was a lot of forgiveness there and a lot of community feel around that. Um, and then we kind of got to this concept of this new normal, like operating within the pandemic is this new normal. And then it started to feel a little bit like the expectations for excellence started to um, sort of yeah. cave, cave back in on us, which was, yeah, we get it. It's hard, but I still, I want my food exactly right. And I want it hot and I want it, you know, when I, it, it, so there was a little bit of this mid period where it was like, we were still, restaurants were still really struggling. The teams were still getting used to stuff but the expectations were starting to come back mm -hmm. up and that forgiveness started to peter out, you know, a little bit. Um, and then I think we're in this world now where people are sort of considering or thinking that we are back to quote unquote business as usual. Um, and therefore um, the, the service should be fast and beautiful and the aesthetic should be perfect and everything should be great. Um, while at the same time, I think businesses and the teams that work in them are still adjusting to all of these different things that are going on. So, you know, now we've got, yes, our restaurants are open again and our store is fully open, <clears throat> but we're still doing all of the online, all of the delivery, all of the online classes that we launched, the wine dinners, the Friday night cheese boards on the videos and the... And so um, there's still a lot that we're kind of adjusting to and, um, and just trying to keep the customers happy when everyone just wants to get back to normal. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. <sighs> Serving up thought for food. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. So you have all these new revenue streams, which are amazing, but you created the new revenue streams to make up for your core revenue stream. Correct. Right? So the core revenue stream were people coming into the market and people eating dinner, lunch. Right. Which has still not come back yet. Right. Not fully. Yeah. Not fully. But now you have, you have all these virtual classes, you have your boards, you have online ordering. So you have all these things, which... I assume you don't want to go away because no. if all things are equal, they are going to increase your revenue, which is, you know, as a business woman, that's what you want, but mm -hmm. making that all happen and having the space to make it all happen is also like, that's sort of one of my questions. Like I think some of, I think of like smaller restaurants that went complete takeaway and now their dining rooms are open. Like 
they can't do both. They don't have the space to accommodate. Yeah. So how are you able to manage that? Well, a lot of it is we, we, again, we're fortunate with sort of how our spaces were laid out. And so we had extra space. We have basements where we were able to do some stuff. We would dedicate part of dining rooms to being fulfillment for to-go orders and things. But it's a lot of multitasking. Um, and we almost had to reprogram our staff after a year some odd of, of certain informality of being at work, right? When you weren't really seeing many customers, almost everything was to go and you were just bagging stuff and really having to retrain people to, to think of service in, in the way that it should be thought about, right? Mm -hmm. um, and to give people a wonderful in-person service experience, which, which can be really difficult when you don't have enough people working. So you, you have fewer people working now, um, trying to find good people. And, um, and those people are working, the people you do find are working really, really, really hard. Like the guys really in my hard. kitchen, I'm like, oh my God, they're working so hard. Um, yeah. And our servers are just working doubles all the time and, and they're doing a great job of it, but it's, it's trying to have enough people um, who want to do the work and who do it really, really well um, is, is the challenge and kind of having to retrain them to have this multitasking functionality that they never used to have before. They used to wait tables mm -hmm. um, and now we're asking them to, to do a whole, a whole gamut, uh, run the gamut of things. Right. Right. Well, so let's talk when you when you and I were talking about this originally, you're, you talked about sort of the relationship between the business and the guest. Mm -hmm. And you said um, you, you break this in your business, you break this into three phases. Can yeah. you kind of look at those? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, again, I think the, the, the first phase of all of this um, for any business, I think, and it's not just Cheese Teak that had this experience. There's so many of the businesses that I would speak with in our community and beyond. If you already had a good a good relationship, excuse me, um, with your customers, then when COVID struck, so to speak, um, there was a lot of goodwill there, and there was a lot of appreciation and a lot of thankfulness, um, and it, it built this sort of additional bond, I think, between the customers and the businesses, which was really, really wonderful. And customers were very generous, and um, and they were supportive of new things that you tried, even if they didn't go great the first time. If you screwed it up, and they were like, "It's cool. I'm glad you were able to try it." And um, there was a lot of a lot of support like that. And that environment is really what fostered a lot of the creativity that was required, I think, for survival. So having customers that were like, that's cool, my order was awful, but like, I love you guys and we'll try again next week, right? Mm -hmm. um, allowed us to have a little bit of that creative spirit um, when we really, really needed it. So that was a wonderful phase in the beginning. There was a lot of give and take. There was um, a lot of appreciation on both sides. Um, and it was like this urgency. It was exciting, frankly, um, to be thinking of all of these new things. You know, we've been in business for almost 20 years. So to have an opportunity to be like, oh my gosh, let's completely reinvent how we do this. It was, I mean, I'll be honest, it was, it was exciting. It was not. Um, well, but the thing is, is that unlike intentional, like let like okay so we want to do this concept and you know we're gonna you know we're gonna brainstorm it and you know focus group it or think it out you didn't have time which i which is not a luxury but also a luxury right like because you didn't have time you're like we're just gonna try it if it doesn't work it doesn't work because right. you, you didn't have to put in that much investment initially do you know what i mean and then if it started working then you could kind of okay, so we see what's happening here. Let's invest a little more. Whereas I, I do believe in more normal quote unquote times, taking a leap of faith on something that may or may not work 
you put a lot more intention into it. You do. And I, and I think a lot of it is, is at least myself as an operator, I tend to too often let great be the enemy of good, right? So I will just work at something until it is quote unquote perfect, which means things don't get rolled out as quickly as I would like them to, or maybe ever. I mean, we have been talking about launching an online store, Nikki. Oh my gosh. Oh, I can't even imagine. Right. Yeah. Just never happened because it was never urgent. Well, not only that, we had it. It's scary. And it's, you probably were always like, God, I just don't have the time yep. to do and We it. had it done in two weeks. And then you found oh, the time. <laughs> Maybe probably even less, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so when we really had to, we really, we really did it. We, you know, delivery it was something we were like, oh, we should deliver. We should deliver. We never delivered. And I'll tell you what, in two days, we had delivery set up. Okay, right. um, and now the delivery person was me uh, in the beginning, but, but still it was working. Um, so, so yeah, it was definitely um, an excuse in a sense, or a, a real fire under your butt to make you try these things that, that had been tabled for a really long time. Like, you know, the whole, the online classes that we do, they're a huge part of our culture now, um, both internally, but also with our customers. And now we just started shipping those a couple of weeks ago. So now not only do you have to, you don't have to be local anymore to do our online classes. You could be in California and we will send you a class kit and you can I mean, do I class. think that is brilliant. I mean, first of all, your classes are amazing. I've done them, but it's, it's so smart to, to not be pigeonholed to an area anymore. You don't have right. to be. You know, and that's one of the great things that I think a lot of businesses learn during COVID is if you're doing a great thing in your neighborhood, there are ways that you can do a great thing outside of your neighborhood as well. It doesn't have to be the same thing you do in your neighborhood, right? right. Um, but you can still do a great thing and touch people in a really meaningful way. I mean, we have people that I cannot count the number of people and it kind of like, it makes me laugh a little bit. And I'm like, seriously, but they will say to me, like, it was your classes every week that got us through COVID. Like, now they don't mean literally, of course, but no, I mean, but they, they were like, it was this bright to, light. It's important to them. Yes. We looked forward to it. We would live for the day. So people tell you that and you're like, oh my gosh, that's, I mean, it's amazing. It's very moving and it's very exciting. Um, and, and can I tell you something? We felt the same way. Like right. doing the classes every two weeks was like, it got us through. Um, it was, so we felt that. And I think my team felt that. And certainly my husband and I doing the classes, we felt that. So I think trying to, you know, create a sense of community that a lot of us had been used to having to create in person became this really exciting way of like, how can we um, sort of create a sense of community possibly remotely or in different ways? Which uh, is amazing. So Jill, listen, the show has to end. I mean, you and I could, because we didn't even get, you're a mom and you have kids and school. Uh, I mean, there's so many other things that we yes. could talk about, but let's just let everybody know right now. Mm -hmm all the ways that they can have access to what's happening at Cheese Teak. And you know, I'll bring you back and we can, you know. Sure. God willing, in a year, we'll come back here and we'll be like, oh, remember when? And, yeah. uh, you know, we'll be in a, 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 not just a different place, but a better place as I knock on wood. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk about all the different ways people can appreciate and participate in your offerings. Yes. Um, so obviously you can come into one of our locations. We're in Arlington and in Alexandria. You can shop in our store. You can dine in our restaurant, either inside or outside on our beautiful patios. So the in-person experience is, is totally in action right now. 
you can purchase hundreds of cheeses and wines and all sorts of other products in our online store and have those um, in a lot of cases shipped to you or delivered to you, or you can pick them up in the store. Um, we do wonderful online classes every two weeks, which are super, super fun. And you get a whole little box of cheese and wine. It's fabulous. Um, and those are more immersive kind of class experiences every Friday night. We do something called the Friday Night Cheese Board, which helps you build your own board at home. And it's all topics and it's very fun. And there's a, a kind of a 10 minute Instagram video that we do for that. Well, and um, it's so hot right now. Like TikTok, Instagram, real TikTok. Ah! Everybody is building those boards like crazy. So any uh, design help you can give is greatly appreciated. Yes, and, and, our, and ours tend to be, you know, we've always been very big on education. So our our whole, even our Friday night cheese boards are all about where do these cheeses come from? Who is making them? What makes them really, really special? Yes, you're building a board, but it's really learning about the artistry, you know, that goes into the cheeses and the wine. So it makes it really fun. Um, we do family meals at home. So if you have family coming in town for the holidays and you don't want to cook every meal, you can get an entire cheese teak meal that you can take home and cook there um, very easily. And it's like homemade, delicious, fabulous. So there's lots of, um, of wonderful ways. We're doing our wine dinners again. So our in-person wow. wine dinners have been, have been going on now for a few months again, and they're sold out every time. So they're going great. I love that. Um, Jill Erber, Cheese Teak. Tell everybody where they can find you online and on Instagram, please. Absolutely. So we are um, at Cheese Teak on Instagram, and we are at cheeseteak.com online. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, that certainly gave you a lot to chew on. Uh, I love that we were able to talk with Eileen Fuchs with the National Building Museum. They're doing such great things there. And if you haven't been to that museum, maybe now it's time to check it out. Uh, and of course, I could talk to Jill Erber for hours. She, um, we didn't even get into the fact that she's a mother and uh, had to deal with her children while running this business um, and school and not being there and everything. She's really an amazing, amazing uh, woman, businesswoman, uh, person, etc. So uh, it was great to have both those uh, powerful women on the show today and to talk about things that are really happening out there. Of course, I want to thank you for joining me. And while Jill and I sort of touched on it, I do want to remind everybody that there are staff shortages out there and there are uh, major disruptions in uh, getting product to not just your grocery stores, but now your restaurants as well. So try to be kind out there. Everybody seems to be at 11. Let's bring it back down to a five. So if you haven't been vaccinated, I don't know what you're waiting for. Get it done. If you're asked to wear a mask, just put it on. And remember, be kind to everybody out there. So I want to thank you all for joining me today. Please have a delicious week. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. 